This is the Uncommon Wisdom Podcast, a podcast companion to the Substack newsletter, Uncommon Wisdom, that helps listeners uncover unusual wisdom through conversations and interviews with some of the most interesting people around. Please like, share, and subscribe. It's free with new content every week. Enjoy the show. This episode, I'm joined by Professor Emrys Westicott from Alfred University. Uh, he's the author of a number of books, including The Virtues of Our Vices and The Wisdom of Frugality. Emrys, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. So I wanted to start with a little background. I get to know you a bit. Uh, could you tell the listeners how and why you're a professional philosopher? I went to university originally to study English uh, with uh, aspirations to be a poet or something like that. One day I encountered, uh, I was a Bob Dylan nut, and one day I encountered a fellow Bob Dylan nut, and uh, the next day we met up and spent uh, about 48 hours listening to Bob Dylan bootlegs that I hadn't heard. He was a philosophy major a couple of years ahead of me, and uh, before the end of my first year, I'd switched from uh, English to philosophy. But it wasn't entirely because of this guy, who's still a very good friend of mine. It was also because, in some ways, the reason I studied English, particularly things like the Romantic Poets, is because I was interested in the world of ideas. I was interested in um, not just how they said things, but I was really interested in what they said, worldviews. Um, then when I encountered philosophy, I felt, ah, now they're asking the question, are these ideas true or false? And I kind of felt pretty at home. And so it wasn't a, a, a difficult uh, switch, although English remains uh, and poetry remains my other main love. Why take it all the way to uh, graduate school and become a professor? Like, what, what was that part? So it's, I suppose it's one thing to follow with philosophy. It's another to make it your vocation. Yeah, well, I'll admit some people, they go to university and they go into a subject like philosophy or classics or history or English. And pretty early on, they decide they want to be a professor, an academic. Uh, and that, that wasn't me. I, um, I only seriously contemplated the idea of becoming a professional academic, that is earning a salary, after I had kids and was responsible for other mouths to feed. Before that, in all honesty, it was just, I loved being a student and I just thought, this is the good life. You're paid a very small amount of money to read books and talk about them. So switching a little bit to uh, the first book I want to talk about of yours, The, the Virtues of Our Vices. I found this to be a very interesting book, initially very counterintuitive. Um, can we start with the vices you talk about in the book are rudeness, gossip, snobbery, tasteless humor, and disrespect for others' beliefs. I thought we could start by laying the groundwork for why conventionally those are thought of as vices. Like, why is gossiping a vice? That's a pretty good question. And, and I don't think there's a, a simple answer. Certainly, it's mentioned in the Bible where it says, don't go up and down and be a talebearer among the people. Um, and when people talk about gossip, they, they immediately think of, of um, malicious gossip. They think of backbiting. They think of, um, uh, and, and they think that you shouldn't say anything to someone's, behind someone's back that you wouldn't say to their face and this kind of thing. And so for some reason, people automatically uh, gravitate towards the negative side of gossip. And there is a negative side, I guess. And, and I, I think to, to directly address your question, wh why do people gravitate immediately to the negative side and think of it as a vice? Possibly because 
they're a little bit worried about what people are going to be saying about them. Possibly they know from experience that the most, uh, the most juicy gossip, the most interesting gossip often is about people's moral failings, you know, such as cheating, cheating on boyfriends and girlfriends and, and um, you know, this kind of, or some, some sort of failures. And so it could be that the, the, we know from our own experience, and if we're honest with ourselves, the most interesting kind of gossip isn't, oh, did you hear that so-and-so has just won another award? <laughs> but rather, oh, did you hear that so-and-so has just exhibited another moral failing? And uh, knowing that about ourselves, we then kind of, uh, real, you know, we, we then are inclined to think that gossip has this sort of rather dark and seamy side. But in the book, I mean, I point out that actually gossip, if you think of it in a broader sense as talking about other people, um, it actually has many positive functions, which we you know, easily overlook. Yeah. So let's start with thinking about those positive. What would be an example of a positive function, something good that could come out of gossip? Well, I would say, for instance, if ever you are um, in the business, whether professionally or otherwise, of arranging uh, interactions between people it's good it may be good for you to know something about what's going on with those people it could be that you're um, you're a manager and you're putting together a team of people to work together um it's better that you know that uh, a couple of this a couple of members of this team have just been going out and had a bust up um you don't want to put them together or it but maybe you're not a manager maybe you're organizing a party and um you know just a party and who to invite or um you know even where you know something like that um the point is that that uh, informal channels of communication uh knowing something about other people can can facilitate social interactions and can help us avoid faux pas i think another really quite important function of gossip is a very simple one it's one of the main ways in which we learn about human beings. Um, you go back to Plato's dialogues and the way Socrates is presented there. Socrates is quite a gossip, actually. He talks a lot about other people. <laughs> and the thing is, and what he's talking about is human nature. And human nature is endlessly interesting to all of us. You can't get a that great insight on human nature, but only by reading authorized biographies, which are the, you know, in other words, the ones that the subjects approve of, you've got to dig a bit deeper than that. Also, one or two to piggyback on um, spreading what you might consider to be malicious gossip. Um, if that could have a positive function, if you were warning somebody not to get involved with an individual who will maybe take advantage or isn't trustworthy. That's a really good, that, that's a very good example. Um, Say, for, for example, let's suppose you are thinking of hiring a babysitter and you hear along the grapevine, the babysitter has a pretty bad drug habit. That's gossip. It's malicious gossip, you could say. Maybe it's very important information. Yeah, definitely. Um, what, what other ways do you think? I know there's stuff in the um, anthropology and moral psychology literature about um, gossip as a, as a form of reputation management, of, of keeping people in check. Um, so, you know, someone's going around taking advantage of others, or this person's a, a very extraordinary, they're actually a very good person, but basically keeping track of someone's character. That, that's interesting. And of course, that's double-edged, because reputation management, you, you, it, it certainly 
gossip is one of the ways in which people establish reputations and their reputations are passed along. And but it can, that can be a force for good or bad, because, for instance, in an intolerant society, I mean, let's take, for example, a society that is extremely intolerant of homosexuality. Well, you know, there um, a person's reputation can be solid. They can suffer quite extensively as a result of, um, of you know, of this kind of this kind of um, gossip. And, um, uh, you know, and, and, and that's to be lamented. It's also true that, that there's another aspect of that, which is that the gossip may be false. Right. And so um, and I write a little bit about this. If you're going to gossip, and frankly, we all do gossip, you know, I, I've never met anyone who doesn't, uh, and, and, that, and that's okay because, because it's just human nature to take an interest in other people. At the same time, you can be, uh, to use a slightly fancy term, you can be epistemologically responsible or irresponsible, right? By epistemologically responsible, I mean, responsible, I, I mean you need to be somewhat careful about how reliable your sources are. It, for instance, if you hear a vague rumor that someone is being charged with sexual harassment, let's say, it really doesn't do to, to just go immediately uh, spreading you know, the idea around that this person is a sexual predator kind of thing. That would be pretty irresponsible. I mean, the responsible thing there is to actually uh, hold, it, hold it in, right? And, and I think that... Um, that is that is a definitely a problem. People people can suffer quite a lot from irresponsible gossip, where uh, they really haven't done anything wrong. A rumor gets out about them, and uh, through no fault of their own, they they're kind of um, tarred and feathered and uh, and ostracized and 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 re rendered suspect. I mean, people start being suspicious of them for no good reason. Yeah, there's plenty of examples of that going on right now in the media. Social media has made that worse, hasn't it? Oh, it has, no, no doubt. And it's also got this weird feature, too, where it seems like it's much easier um, through gossip, among other mechanisms, to ruin reputations than to rectify them if the gossip is false. One, one problem I um, had, actually, in, in writing that material is... Um, is that it was a bit of a moving target because while I was writing it, the this was what ten um, years ago or so, the the um, the original article I'd written on gossip was really written before you know before Twitter and Facebook really kind of exploded, and then as I was sort of finishing the book and I was realizing, damn, you know, I mean, this whole area of of things like what you're just talking about, reputation management. It's entered and it's got taken a quantum leap because of because of social media, and and honestly, I'm not much of an expert on social media. I I um I, I kind of steer clear of it to be honest because because I, I think it's just you know it, it it's a time sink and it and it burns up your emotional energy. Yes, it's a to, to quote Obi Wan Kenobi. It's a what is it a hive of of um scum and villainy or at least can be anyway um, i want i wanted to speaking of um vices i wanted to switch to rudeness you're a jerk so i say something like that and you're like i can see why that's a vice it's it's um it's mean but what's what could be good about being brood well i think i think there are certain times when rudeness might be in order and it and it it's very contextual this uh yes 
Um, generally speaking, I'm a utilitarian. That is, I, um, I think we should try to promote happiness and reduce unhappiness and displeasure. And so um, causing people unnecessary unhappiness by, by insulting them or anything like that is, um, is you know, against my sort of principles. At the same time, um, there might be times, let's take, for example, uh, it, it could be that uh, sometimes being rude has pedagogical value. You need, to, you need to break through someone's barriers a little bit. You need, you need to just, a little bit like a teacher, you know, just sort of, you know, slamming the desk and saying, that's it, I've had enough, you know, uh, uh, you know, you and your cell phone, you know, you, you know, put that damn thing away, you know, or get out of my class, you know. Um, there's a, there's a point, it doesn't mean you, you've lost control or anything like that, but you, you've, you're, you're using, you, you can use a certain amount of rudeness, not, not over the top rudeness, but a certain amount to, to make a point to say, you know, um, to, to get through to someone. I think another another case is uh, which I talk about in the book because I find it interesting myself is actually a huge amount of of our everyday uh, humour, our everyday teasing of our family family and friends involves mock rudeness. Now you could say it's not real rudeness, but it's it's a sort of um, interesting phenomenon. Uh, I, I I would think any of your listeners, if they think back over the last twenty four hours, will probably be able to think of a and of an occasion where they've they've basically engaged in mock rudeness and mock you know let's say you know they they, they might um uh, deliberately like like let's put, here's an example off the top of my head you you um you write a check for someone and you say you know to to so and so and right you know 25 dollars and 38 cents and not a penny more right you know you know the implication is that they'd be adding zeros or something like that does that have a positive function? It, it does. It, it actually, um, it, it, it's a, part of getting along with people. It's part of a kind of, um, uh, the fact that you can allow that informality actually shows that you've, you've, you're a little bit closer. Informality indicates closeness, I think. Yeah, that's actually, there's actually work um, in what's called signaling theory. This is the people who are particularly close um, you know, like um, two guys who bust each other's chops all the time, that that's a signal that you're close because you couldn't get away with that with someone who you weren't close with. But it's like good natured ripping if you're, you know, besties. Um, it, it, it's uh, it, it actually forms a when I when I started thinking about that, it, it, it struck me how how big a part of of our social life it forms. I started looking out for it. I found that, you know, when you get a gathering of good friends uh, it's actually it's quite pervasive it's it's all pervasive um uh, and and that's kind of that's kind of nice but but uh, i mean of course you know <laughs> rudeness you know um doesn't obviously a lot of the time it it's not good one of the things that struck me is actually how um how important it is on the other side when it when it it's, but I, I make this point, and I don't know if you agree. Tell me if you agree with this. That you might think of rudeness as a as a um, small thing. I mean, someone's rude to you, big deal. And if that's just someone sort of um, just sort sort of let's say bumping into you on the street in New York and and not saying not saying sorry, well, no big deal. But if a colleague was rude to you, 
someone whose opinion you cared about and that 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 would be worse emotionally that would that would really be um great on you emotionally much worse than something like you know someone say stealing your laptop i think it, I'm, I'm i'm quite serious about this it, it really would steal it having your laptop stolen is pretty bad but having a having a colleague whose opinion you thought you know they thought you thought they respected you you respected them and then they are unaccountably just rude to you let's say they they just completely ignore you uh, or treat you with disrespect in front of other people or something like that that would uh, be could be incredibly upsetting and that's kind of interesting and i think the reason is because when when someone does something like steal your laptop they're not they're not in, in a sense, they're showing a certain amount of disrespect for you. We can get Kantian here. Kant says we shouldn't use people as a, as a means, as merely a means to our own ends, but always treat them as ends in themselves. And so when someone steals your laptop, they're using you as a means to their own ends, you know, to get a laptop. But when someone is rude to you, they're really disrespecting you in a much more direct way. And I've come to think that the desire for respect is one of the most important motivations in our lives. Respect is incredibly important. I mean, maybe another way to put the point that you're making, and I think it's a good one, um, is that taking a stranger taking your laptop says more about the opportunity than it does about you as a person. Whereas being insulted by a colleague, especially in front of others, says more about you than the opportunity. Yeah. So in the, in the latter case, it's like, if it wasn't me, it would be somebody else. It, assuming the opportunity was there to steal their laptop. Um, whereas the rudeness from this colleague was presumably directed at me. Although you might think maybe that's blunted if this person is just in a bad mood and being rude to everybody. Like, <laughs> like they're just rude to all their yeah. colleagues because they, they have a bad day or they have a headache or, or something. It, could all, it, could, it also says something about your relationship, doesn't it? That's significant as well. And the relationship, uh, again, the relationship matters uh, in the sense that if a colleague that I'm kind of distant from, let's say at my university, someone from one of the other units, let's say the engineering unit and someone I don't really know, well, I'd be pretty fed up, but, uh, but, it, but it, I don't know them that well. It would, that would be di very different from someone who, where I thought I had some sort of closer relationship with, um, because then the relationship is at stake too. Um, a very difficult uh, area i think a completely messy area here is is family relationships because family families are different and um in families uh things can blow up and be mended and then blow up again and and there can be um fantastic levels of rudeness in a family and it uh, it um uh, and I'm, I'm not sure what to say about that uh people 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 have thresholds, don't they, of, of what they can tolerate and what they can't. And sometimes uh, someone can say something that is just unforgivable, you know, and sometimes the, the nature of the relationship is such that, yeah, that happens and we make up. Yeah, I'm wondering how this relates to um, being a snob, which I think is interesting for a variety of reasons, one of which is that I've and maybe this is just my take, but my personal take. Um, but it, it strikes me that a lot of academics are snobs and often unjustifiably so. They don't say it oftentimes or they'll say it indirectly, but 
and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying every academic. I'm just saying this, this is a tendency among some academics that, you know, looking down on someone who drives a truck for a living or someone who didn't go to college. And, you know, this isn't true of every academic. There are plenty of, of great academics that, that are not snobs, but it seems like a sort of um, lofty disdain. So what could be good about being a snob? I, I don't think there is, a, there is too much good about being a snob in the sense of looking down on people. I think that, and, and I, I certainly, uh, it's funny, I just, I just wrote one of my, um, my Three Quarks Daily articles uh, on why I like Nietzsche so much. Um, Nietzsche is, is, fantastic, is a fantastic snob. He's a complete unabashed elitist. Although I love reading him because he's such a great writer. I don't agree or share his, you know, with or share his elitism and that. But um, I, I, I just wonder, I, 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 um, I question actually your premise there. That is, it's true that people who are highly educated are quite likely to have a tendency to look down on people who aren't. But isn't it also true that perhaps people who are supremely practical look down on people who aren't, that people who, um, you know, are, uh, you know, kind of got lots of kind of real good hands-on experience, look down on people who are very sort of abstract and otherworldly? I mean, don't, you know, isn't one, isn't one of the, part of the fun in life, finding people who can't do what you do and looking down on them? <laughs> oh, oh, I think it's very bi-directional, yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm just speaking more from, because I'm an academic, so that's my yeah. background. But yeah, I, I, I imagine people who are really good at their hands, construction workers, would look down on me. I'm not very useful. And in an emergency, I'm pretty, I'm useless because I'm a philosopher. So, you know, like, like a doctor or a plumber. Or... Yeah, I, I, th I think though that, that uh, yeah, I don't think there's a huge amount to be said for looking down on people. I think, uh, I, I think, one really needs to be just self-aware about that, and and uh, it would certainly in in the the current current state in the U.S. there is a there is a tremendous amount of of sort of apparently people rather despising people who are not like them, and I don't think that's very um, very productive. I think that in the in the chapter on snobbery, there, I mean, one of the things I get into is the issue of of stereotypes. And, uh, and the way that we think in stereotypes. And I, I'm, I'm sort of, there's a lot of criticism of thinking in stereotypes, but I'm sort of critical of that criticism in a way, because I think that we can't help but, to some extent, we can't help but think in generalizations about people. We, it's the way we, we're, we're, we're sort of pretty much hardwired by evolution to think in terms of generalizations. And so we, um, we can't help but do that. And, it, and it's actually very rational most of the time to think in terms of generalizations. It's just that sometimes they're pernicious. I mean, when they're based on, uh, you know, false sexual racial or whatever stereotype, you know, um, generalizations, then, then they're pernicious. But I don't think you have to throw out all stereotypical thinking on those grounds. Yeah, just to add something really quick, um, if, if you think of generalizations as sort of cognitive shortcuts. We don't have time to sit around and think of detailed thoughts about when you can just make shortcuts. As long as they generally do the trick, then by and large, they're useful and, and good. Uh, right. They can go off the rails, of course. But I think people tend to think generalizations, they think, you know, negative stereotype. But we think, for example, um, mosquitoes bite. <laughs> but it turns out only female mosquitoes bite. The males don't. 
but it's still a useful thing because if you see a mosquito, you're, you think, well, they bite. Right. You have time to think, well, it might be a male, it might be a female. And, and possibly not, not all tigers eat you, but, you know, if you encounter a tiger, um, I, you know, it makes sense to be cautious. Yeah. But th- so this actually ties into something that I find strange. Um, and you talk about this in the book, and it's, it's an interesting discussion, I think. Um, this idea that disrespect for other people's beliefs is a vice, I find puzzling. I mean, I, I think it's one thing to disrespect a person, but oftentimes some beliefs are ill-informed, dumb, poorly thought out, not very nice. Why not disrespect other people's beliefs? I mean, sometimes, sure, but other times it seems like they're quite deserving. Yeah, th- this one's complicated. And actually, I, I feel that this chapter of the book, uh, which is called Why Should I Respect Your Stupid Opinions, uh, to some extent has been has been misinterpreted in some ways. One person wrote a review of this chapter and said, oh, I like the book well enough, except I got the last chapter. And basically the last chapter simply trashes religion, right? And the reason they said that is because the way I begin the chapter is by saying, let's imagine you're on a jury and um, there's a witness who's, you know, kind of exposed by the the council as holding all kinds of really weird beliefs about UFOs controlling, uh, sorry, aliens controlling the government and everything like that. And it it rather discredits the the witness. And in the jury room afterwards, everyone says, oh, God, that nutcase who who believes that aliens are controlling the government. And then someone says, well, did you notice that another witness actually, uh, she's a devout Catholic and um, she believes that Jesus rose from the dead after three days and all kinds of things and ascended to heaven on a cloud. And that's equally uh, unbelievable, really, from any kind of scientific point of view. So, you know, if you're going to hold it against people that they hold uh, implausible beliefs, then there you go. What's the difference? Now, I, I, I do think that is a perfect... I actually, I'm, I'm not religious and I'm, I have certain criticisms of religion. And I actually think there is an equivalence there, I, except, except for the fact that the the you know the standard orthodox uh, religious belief has the the weight of tradition behind it you know and and the the belief about aliens doesn't so uh however right however in the chapter i also say there's there's many different ways of respecting a belief and many different reasons for respecting a belief and so for instance take the greek myths I respect those myths because I think they contain beauty and I think they contain wisdom uh, and, um, and, you know, they're, and they're very entertaining, right? Uh, you can respect myths, you, you can respect religion or you can respect um, belief systems or mythologies and that for, for psychological insight about human nature for you can respect them for how they've made possible a certain civilization, a certain culture, how they're bound up with a certain culture, which you kind of respect. Let's say, you know, the, the, the legends of the Native Americans and, how, you know, how they're, they're woven into a certain relationship with nature or something like that. So there are lots of different reasons why I'd say, you know, it could be historical, it could be cultural, it could be traditional, it could be, um, um, you know, aesthetic um uh and it could be that they simply contain wisdom however there's also what i call epistemological respect and that is you know epistemology the theory of knowledge right the that is simply do you take them seriously 
as possible truths. That's where um, I think, you know, I pull away from, you know, I, I don't take seriously the idea that Zeus is living on top of Olympus. And I don't take seriously the idea that Jesus ascended to heaven on a cloud, you know, or that someone's, you know, stick turned into a snake or, or that someone's donkey started talking in Hebrew or whatever. You know, I, I, I think those, uh, you know, those are completely unbelievable. And so I make a distinction between epistemological respect and other kinds of respect. And it seems to me that that, that it's a mistake to therefore say that, oh, then I'm totally trashing religion. I'm actually sort of saying, look, there's, there's reasons to respect these beliefs, but they're not, but, but the reason isn't because they might be true. And, and also that you can, you can think these beliefs are false, but still treat people who hold them with respect as persons. Right. I think it's conflated a lot. Like if I think people think that, um, you know, maybe to, to not treat certain beliefs as true is to disrespect the holder of those beliefs, which I, I find that puzzling too. That I, ag I agree with you, but uh, uh, I agree with you, but I, I um, when you do find, you know, you, you, you know, be honest, right? If you're having a conversation with someone and everything's going fine, and then you find that they, they hold some absolutely a belief that you find really objectionable, how, do, how does that not change your view of them? You're having a perfectly nice conversation with someone and then you find they're a Holocaust denier. Well, it might change, it might change the way you view them in some senses. Doesn't it reduce your respect for them as a person? And I Probably, don't mean, yeah. I mean, it, it would. I, I, I don't think that would justify me like punching them on the nose or something. But no. I definitely wouldn't. I would probably trust them less. Yeah. I mean, I think you can distinguish there between a, a kind of respect we have for everyone in virtue of the fact they're human beings, a kind of Kantian universal respect, you're a free rational being and uh, with, you know, human dignity and that. And then there's respect for them in a more, in a slightly narrower way where you can, you can respect someone's abilities, you can respect someone's intellect, you can respect someone's morals or something like that. And uh, I think that in some way, if you find that someone holds beliefs that you think are either, either utterly crazy or really, really objectionable, it, it, it can't help. You know, I think it's very difficult for it not to affect your view of them as a person, even while you don't punch them on the nose because they are human beings. And, you know, we we treat people with respect. But you um, you may you may hold a lower, you know, hold a lower opinion. Yeah, no, I think that's 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 getting at what I poorly articulated. But yes, I think that's important to distinguish. Um, and I wanted to switch gears because we're um, running out of time here a little bit. Because um, I want to talk about your other book, The Wisdom of Frugality. And um, I just started reading it. So some of my questions are probably going to sound a little... Um, but what initially struck me was, you know, why this... Why you would find, or anyone would find frugality so puzzling. I mean, if for no other reason than keeping things simple, probably better for like things like money management, not spending money on luxury. In other words, you, you could think of it as like being a kind of thrifty. And I can see, I can see the upside of that. So what's the puzzle? Well, uh, there's no puzzle for, if you're a philosopher, there's no puzzle, is there, as to why you need to be thrifty and, uh, and frugal, right? because uh, <laughs> you've not exactly followed the money, right? <laughs> uh, I think that, um, well, the puzzle, the puzzle is this, that uh, philosophers have, from time immemorial, 
advocated uh, thrift and frugality and simple living. Yet uh, one of the ideal, one of the, the ambitions for many people, one of the goals that they chase is not frugality, thrift and simple living, but they, they want prosperity and wealth and luxury. So you have this kind of disconnect between what the wisdom of the sages down through the ages have recommended and what, especially in our contemporary materialistic consumer society, what strikes most people as highly desirable. Uh, and the, the, the puzzle there is, is why haven't the philosophers um, done, been able to persuade people more effectively? to buy into their system of values. Wasn't that more of a general problem? I mean, philosophers haven't persuaded people of a lot of things they've argued for. I mean, that's partly because I think people find philosophers dry and abstract and but it, pedantic. This, but on this topic, that it, it's, it's not a dry, abstract topic. It, it's not, it's not let's, give a, let's arrive at a correct definition of the meaning of the word truth. This is... Uh, as Socrates says in the Republic, this is about how we should live. It's not a dry topic. And um, I, I think that, that uh, no, I'm not sure what to say about your claim there, that philosophers generally don't do a very good, good job of, it, of persuading people. I'm going to have to think about that. Uh, I mean, religious philosophers have had quite a lot of weight. Thomas Aquinas carried some weight. Um, Aristotle's philosophy I mean, Aristotle's philosophy dominated intellectual thinking, at least for a very long time. The scientific revolution was, was born along in part by philosophers who were, many of them, also scientists. In, in, other, in other cultures, I mean, in, in Buddhism and Hinduism, um, and I, I, th I think philosophers, I think they're more influential than you think. I, 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 I guess I buy into a little bit of the trickle-down theory of philosophy, that people may not read philosophers, but they end up absorbing their ideas. In fact, in a class that I just taught, uh, I taught about, uh, we used um, Hegel, the philosophy, Hegel's philosophy of history. And Hegel's philosophy of history, he argues that history, basically, that the arc of history bends towards freedom. And I kind of argued in class that pretty much that's the narrative that we've all absorbed, whether we've not read Hegel or not. But this we're getting kind of it's a bit of a digression whether how persuasive philosophers are on on um, on frugality. Have I got you right that you say well it's a naturally pleasing idea, it's a naturally attractive idea. Why do you need philosophers to persuade people about that? Is that is that your view? Well, the reason I, I say this is because at least in the United States, there's a lot of there's a lot of debt. And so one of the thoughts and one of the things bandied about is that people don't make enough money and that's why they're in debt. And that's probably, that's probably true to, to an extent. But also people are really bad at money management. They, they don't budget the way they should. I mean, we're all probably guilty of this to some degree. In other words, given what you make, if you don't want to be in debt, then you need to bring your spending down. That seems like a very practical, and frugality sort of feeds right into that. That seems like a very practical thing. Debt is stressful. It constrains your lifestyle in the future. And you don't want debt if you can avoid it. That's true. But I would say a couple of things there. That one is that, uh, I th I th well, I think you're being a little unsympathetic. I think that um, one is we do live in a materialistic consumerist society where people can't get through five minutes of the day without being hit by an advert. I mean, if they're on, if they're on, the, on the internet, 
they're seeing adverts all the time. If they're driving their car, they're seeing adverts all the time. If they open the magazine, they're seeing adverts. If they're watching television, they're seeing adverts, all of which are saying, buy this product and you'll be happy, you know, more or less. I think that the other thing is that, um, to be fair, people, people can get themselves into debt or be landed in debt. And, and yes, they can make some bad choices, but then it can be awfully difficult to get out of that um, pit that they're in. And maybe they'll say, yes, you know, to some extent, I'm responsible for them for this. But let's suppose um, you're, um, let's suppose you're a single parent, you're 24 years old, you you don't have health insurance. And that's because, you, you know, you don't have a, the kind of job that provides it. And uh, because you, you, you can't get that kind of job. And then your child needs uh, health care. And, you know, the only way of getting it is to put more on the credit card, which and the credit card company, they're, you know, frankly, they're, they're vampires. They're charging you 24 percent or something like that. You're getting deeper in debt. And I think that uh, it can be very difficult. The, the, um, it, it's expensive to be poor. I don't know if you've read um, Barbara Ehrenreich's um, Nickel and Dimed. That's you've probably heard of the book. That's all about how expensive it is to be poor, because you know, you, you can't get a nice cheap apartment because for that you need a deposit and you can't get together a deposit. And so you end up staying in a motel and the motel is much more expensive than a, um, than an apartment. And you can only pay it, you know, you, again, with credit card or something, or with what do you call it? You know, payroll loans, payday loans and, uh, at extortionate rates. So I, I think that I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not denying any of that. My only, my only point was simply that we talk in our society a lot about people not making enough money. And to some extent, that's true. There's lots of cases of this. But there are also plenty of people who make more than enough and are yet are in debt. They make $100,000 yeah. a year. They have very low living costs, but they blow it on online shopping. And we don't talk enough, it seems to me, as a society, about also money management, too. Like, just not buying things. And you're right. We are, we are constantly inundated with ads. Friends going out to get coffee, going to the movies, go out to dinner. So you have that sort of peer pressure stuff. There's definitely a lot of those factors. But I'm just, my only point was it seems like frugality has a very practical value to it, if nothing else. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I, I actually think that, um, and, and the philosophers going back to Epicurus and the like, say this, that this is, this is the, um, the royal road to happiness in, in some ways. I think that the way I see it is it's fundamentally about um, being very clear regarding your true values. When people, the kind of people you describe where they've got a perfectly adequate income and yet they're spending above their income. I think often what's happening is that they, they're mistaken about their real values. They're, 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 they're spending money on things that they don't really need that aren't really going to make them happy, but they're they're It's not necessarily just succumbing to the adults, succumbing to peer pressure, but somehow they they've got a mistaken idea about what will make them content, and um, and so the, and that mis, misleads them. I think that um, the the most important lesson. You can learn from the the you know the sages like Epicurus and people like that is precisely to to get really clear about what it is you value and if you can get really clear about what it is you value then you will maybe you won't live super frugally but you'll only spend money on something that really um, is worthwhile uh, for example to choose myself for example um, three years ago 
we spent money um you know on a on a um, hike around mont blanc uh, you know uh, with a guide and and this kind of thing it wasn't the cheapest holiday it wasn't it wasn't super expensive it wasn't the cheapest holiday but it was fantastically worthwhile uh, i i i think looking back i'd pay almost twice as much for it it was so, such a great experience right whereas um you know when uh, i mean quite recently we went out for a meal and damn it you know the end of it all because we had some wine and because we had dessert it was a hundred dollars and where i live um any meal you get out is never as good as what you can cook at home and uh, you know we, we live in a rural area and 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 if you say was that worth a hundred dollars the answer is no not really it just wasn't you know <laughs> so maybe say more about the connection between frugality and happiness is that is that because when you're frugal you're spending money on things that you really value and that's a way of you can afford more things that are happy and you can focus your attention on things that make you happy is that roughly the idea i think that um living living simply simplifying your life is is for most people uh, a pretty good idea um it does it does precisely it's just what you said you can focus you can keep things simple and you can just focus on what matters to you. I mean, no doubt there are people who thrive on chaos and thrive on, on taking on too many projects and, and uh, you know, running from one to the other. I'm not one of them, I, you know, uh, but perhaps you are. Uh, but I, but I, I don't want to generalize, you know, and say every, for every human being, this is the royal road to happiness and that kind of thing. I do, I do think, I do think that um, not, mis not making mistakes that, you know, say buying more, items i mean i once knew someone who who uh was complete obviously completely addicted to online shopping for clothes and was just buying you know had a wardrobe full of clothes that she wasn't wearing and you know it, that seems kind of silly you're basically getting a little little dopamine rush from clicking set you know buy you know which is which i think that's foolish um but I, but I, you know i think that um and, but I, th I do think that there's some things that in life where um, they can be expensive and they are worthwhile for the person who wants to do them. Uh, I, I don't want to be too critical of, of spending money. I, I think one of the arguments in the book is that um, is that there is another side. Uh, there is another. There is another side to the argument. I mean, it's easy to to read Epicurus and read Marcus Aurelius and read Thoreau, and say yes, yes, yes. These people are very wise. We should simplify, simplify, simplify. Right. But then, uh, in the book, you haven't you haven't got to this bit yet. But in the book, I I um I say, okay, what's the argument in favour of extravagance? And the argument in favour of extravagance is there's a few. And um, one is that much of what we call civilization is built on extravagance um if you if people go uh, as tourists to europe where do they go do they go to see versailles they go to see the wonders of the italian renaissance right and places like that um, these are all monuments to extravagance um the taj mahal the pyramids you know the great wall of china whatever you know these are all these these are vast uh, pieces of extravagance and we kind of um for that matter, the um, the aristocrats of the 18th century used to hire, used to employ entire orchestras, and they had people like Mozart and Haydn and the like as their court musicians, and they commissioned works. And we now 
adore these works, right? I mean, if it wasn't for the fantastically extravagant aristocrats who did all this, perhaps we wouldn't have the works. Uh, would, would we be better off if everyone had been super frugal through the ages? I think also that what's important to realize is that for most of human history, the vast majority of people had hardly any possessions at all. And their main concern was to, that they had enough to live on, enough to eat, right? Just, I mean, they didn't own, own a house. They own everything they own could probably put, be put in a small bag, if that. And um, they just hoped that they wouldn't starve and they wouldn't get killed in a war or die in a famine or die of plague or something like that. And only very recently has it become true that, that very large numbers of us, we have far more. We don't just have far more possessions. We have far more recreational opportunities. I mean, we, you know, if I say to my students, do you want this life? Do you want the life of pure simplicity? You basically, you live in a little log cabin and you grow some beans and you are, you know, you, you, you basically, you don't starve and you, um, you enjoy nature. Is that, is that enough? Most of them will say no. And if I say why, they'll say, well, it's boring. You know, I want to travel. I want to see the world. I want to go skydiving. I want to go bungee jumping. I want to, you know, I want to do stuff. I want to be a player, you know. And the thing is that, that a peasant, you know, 300 years ago didn't want to go bungee jump or anything, not just because it hadn't been invented, but because they, 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 um, they were all about surviving and getting by. But now we have all these wonderful recreational opportunities opened up in front of us. We, we want more out of life. You've convinced me. I think frugality is a terrible idea. Well, I was especially thinking of like beautiful pieces of art, music, you know, these sorts of things that I, I say this to my students all the time. I always ask, you know, if you, if you lost your vision or your hearing, what would be worse? And a lot of them say hearing. And I ask them why, you know, because humans are very visual. They go, well, I could listen to music. It's a very important part of their life, music. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you think, well, yeah. But so without that sort of extravagance, would we live in a world? I mean, do you want to live in a world with substantially less music? But that's, that's the argument also for philosophy. Would you want to live in a world without philosophy? Uh, when people say philosophy is useless, I um, see, I don't agree. To me, philosophy is, it's part of the great conversation. It's human beings reflecting on the world, reflecting on life, reflecting on who they are and, and, and the rest. And um, you don't want a world without those conversations any more than you want a world without music. Um, well, I think when they say useless, they mean it doesn't, it doesn't fill your belly, but neither does music. Or yeah. painting or sculptures or... Right. And man doesn't live by bread alone, someone once said. Yeah, I think, I think part of it too is once you, once you get your basic needs fulfilled, you start realizing you have these higher order needs, whether it's reflecting on the meaning of life or yeah. you know, the value of, of an action or whether God exists or free will or all these sorts of things. I wanted to, speaking of, speaking of philosophy and, and the value of it, I wanted to end with a couple of questions that I, I'll ask all my guests. The first one is about failure. I was curious if you could share with us a time in your professional or personal life where you failed in a, in a very big way and what you learned from it. In a big way. It doesn't have to be embarrassing. It's just something important or yeah. it made it, it left a mark. It, 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 you know, it's something you think about sometimes. It changed trajectories or you know, something like that. It, it, that's, this is awkward because if I, if I don't come up with some kind of failure then it makes me sound like oh i guess i don't fail at anything uh, i don't think i it tends to be more when when i think of 
stuff like that. I think more of where of of things I could have should have done that I didn't do. Um, so, for instance, one of my I think I think one of my biggest failures in in census I never learned properly foreign languages. I I um, wasn't naturally good at those, and I I later on I learned French and German, but only really a reading knowledge. Um, not uh, I'm pretty crap at um, any kind of oral oral skills, and I feel very bad about it. I feel that it's uh, been a, a serious intellectual limitation, and I think that um, I, I should you know I I should have done something. Uh, about that much earlier in life that is basically the way to do that is when you're younger to just find a way to immerse yourself in that and I think the reason I didn't and I could have done you know I could, I could have found a way. the reason I didn't is is because I I just wasn't sort of willing to discomfort myself enough or to take enough of a chance I think generally speaking I've tended to commit sins of omission you know in that way tended to well, you know, this is the easier way. Um, I think um, that would be one one example where I, um, I I just go with what's kind of comfortable instead of instead of really sort of um, challenging myself in a big way. I, I um, yeah, I, th I think a, another sin of omission is that I, um, you know, I, I told you I. I went to university, you know, wrote poetry and studied English and this kind of thing. I also play the guitar a bit and occasionally write songs and stuff like that. I'm not claiming that I'm that great. But again, I was kind of shy. I was kind of, I kind of held back and I not, I'm not saying, oh, you know, I could have been a contender. I'm not saying that at all. But I, I kind of regret that I didn't throw myself into that stuff more and become a more adept musician and, and, and more sort of a confident and, and more willing to to go up on stage and that kind of thing. I think, um, you know, I, I am I'm someone who's very prone to regret. Unfortunately, I regret that I'm prone to regret. I don't think it's particularly all that healthy, but I never say I regret nothing. You know, I um, if I was yeah, if I was giving advice to my younger self to myself when I was 20 or something I would say I, I would say like Nietzsche live dangerously and don't uh, I mean throw yourself into things don't hold back for fear of embarrassment or for fear of failure uh, uh. so I think I think it's a bit of a long-winded reply but perhaps one of my failures is a fear of failure and finally the last question it's one about legacy I'm curious what you want people to say about you and your work in 100 years or another way to put this would be, what would you like on your tombstone? I mean, being, you know, being honest, uh, uh, you know, I, I know perfectly well that in a hundred years, people aren't going to be reading my books or anything. And so if it's had to say something on my tombstone, it would, it would just be, you know, some message that someone loved me. Emerson, it's been good having you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure.